0: Welcome to the third season of Pushing Pediatrics, the ultimate podcast for pediatric physical therapists studying for the pediatric board specialty exam. We remain dedicated to providing guidance and support to pediatric physical therapists looking to excel in their field.
1: We understand the challenges you face while studying for and passing the certification exam, but with our expert guidance and unwavering support, we are confident
0: that you can achieve your goals. So let's dive into this journey towards becoming a board-certified pediatric physical therapist together.
1: Listener note, this podcast was created as an adjunct for those studying for the PCS exam. By no means do we guarantee that one will pass the exam solely by listening to this podcast. We encourage all those studying for the exam to put in the appropriate time and effort into their studying using resources recommended by the ABPTS and the APTA. It is not allowed to discuss test content, and we will not accept any questions related to test content. While we will do our best to provide the most accurate information, if you feel as though we've stated something that is incorrect, please contact us via Instagram or Facebook at Pushing Pediatrics or send us an email at pushingpediatrics at
0: gmail.com. Welcome back today we begin by covering sports injuries, which piggybacks off last week's episode where we discussed orthopedic conditions. Some stuff is the same, some stuff is a little bit different, but repetition is always good.
1: The crucial aspect of managing sports injuries in children is prevention. It's really important for children to have the appropriate physiological conditioning, strength, and flexibility to safely engage in sports activities, whether those sports are organized or just recreational. While lack of fitness, strength, and flexibility doesn't necessarily mean they can't participate, it is necessary to incorporate measures to address these aspects and conditioning and training programs to reduce the risk of injury.
0: So the book talks about several key elements in this kind of injury risk management process, which includes a pre-participation examination, conditioning and training, proper supervision, ensuring body protection, and controlling environmental factors.
1: All right. So let's dive into each of these elements a little bit deeper. So first, the pre-participation examination or the PPE. So what does this really entail? It generally includes a medical history, a medical examination that includes cardiovascular, neurological, respiratory, gastrointestinal, urogenital, dermatological, and musculoskeletal um, system evaluation. It also includes body composition, which includes height and weight determination, specific field testings, and then an assessment of readiness. So including physical, psychological, and
0: mental health. The next step in prevention is to create a personalized training plan that targets the specific issues of the athlete and aligns with the demands of whatever sport they're in. This plan can be developed by a variety of qualified people. Once created, it should be taught to the athlete, their parent or guardian, and the coach to ensure that everyone is aware of the training requirements and so everyone can work together towards that injury prevention, conditioning, and training. I think the book has a key point in that the training always needs to be systematic and progressive. I think we often hear, even in adults and children, when injuries occur, it's usually doing something too much or too fast.
1: In order to be comprehensive, the personalized training plan needs to include all components. So this includes energy training, which is both aerobic and anaerobic, muscle training, so strength, endurance, flexibility, and power speed training, and then also, importantly, nutrition.
0: The book highlights the idea to create a well-rounded and well-paced program to reduce the risk of injuries. Like we just said, Like it needs to be slow and progressive.
1: Resistance training before puberty is safe, despite people still advocating against it. The mechanism of this gain in strength is likely related to neural adaptations in the muscle and not hypertrophy of muscle tissue.
0: Of course, it's essential to have appropriate supervision during the training session to minimize the risk of accidental injuries and to have someone to provide feedback on proper lifting techniques. If we can develop good lifting techniques at a young age, we really have the ability to set some of these kids up for success.
1: It's generally recommended to avoid one max rep lifts in younger athletes and instead work with lighter weights with higher sets and repetitions to gain strength so again avoiding the one maximum rep and doing lighter weights with higher sets and repetitions
0: we just hit on this idea specific to strength training but proper supervision in all facets of a training program is important it's not just with the strength component it's with everything
1: Another component to managing sports injuries includes enforcing mandatory and appropriate equipment guidelines and ensuring the quality and fit of the gear. So this includes helmets, eye protection, and mouth protection, which are all mentioned in Campbell. And I feel like this is really important too, because so much of the time when the kids are younger, a lot of the times they use borrowed equipment, right? So it's not necessarily like, especially if kids are trying out different sports, And their parents don't want to invest in whatever equipment it is. They're just trying things out. This is a really important uh, concept to kind of remember.
0: Right. Like a helmet that's too big that just moves around isn't actually protecting the head. It's just allowing your head to move around in a different avenue. The last component to manage sports injuries is controlling the environmental factors as much as we can. This includes things like keeping well-lit and obstacle-free playing areas and have qua- and having quality shock-absorbing surfaces. Also, consider things like ambient temperature and humidity, along with focusing on proper hydration, monitoring hydration levels, and being aware of the signs of both dehydration and excessive fluid intake. The book mentions that kids aren't as good at regulating their temperatures, so this is definitely something that we need to be really thoughtful of.
1: And two, like with some people living in hotter areas of the United States, you also got to think about the heat when they're outside as well. I know here where I am um, in upstate, like Western New York, our kids, it's like once it hits a certain temperature outside, they can't participate in sports. They can't do recess, all that kind of stuff. So just something else to kind of think of too. Injury can be the result of one big single event or due to repetitive micro trauma, which then leads to overuse. Overuse injuries are usually due to one or more of the following factors, so things like training errors, musculotendinous imbalances of strength and or flexibility, anatomic malalignment of the lower extremity, improper footwear, faulty playing surfaces, associated disease states of the lower extremity such as an old injury or arthritis, and then also growth factors.
0: We are going to move on to the unique aspects of sports injuries in children. Sports injuries usually fall into three categories. So you have your fractures, you have your joint injuries, and then you have your muscle tendon unit injuries. But how are these different from their adult counterparts? How are these different from their adult counterparts? We'll go over fractures first.
1: Stress fractures are relatively new in children, typically caused by repetitive microtrauma or poor training. Unlike in adults, these fractures occur in cancellous bone rather than cortical bone and may not be visible on radiographs until six to eight weeks after the onset of pain. Growth plate or epiphyseal fractures are unique to children due to the growth plate being less resistant to shear or tensile forces compared to ligaments or cortical bone. The severity and potential complications of epiphyseal fractures depend on the specific growth plate that's involved and the extent of the injury. Physial fractures are class are classified using the Salter-Harris system, which we talked about last week. Make sure you review a picture of the Salter-Harris system. Great thing to put on your daily study guide or your master study guide. The risk of growth disturbance following a physial injury varies depending on the nature of the injury and individual factors, such as the stage of adolescence when growth is accelerated. In older children approaching adulthood, shaft fractures are more common.
0: Diagnosing ligament sprains in children requires careful consideration. During a growth spurt, the ligaments may be stronger than the growth plate, which means that excessive bending or twisting forces could result in the growth plate yielding rather than the ligament. An accurate assessment requires careful clinical examination due to anatomical variations and physiological laxity. Comparison to the other side is important and can be really helpful in these situations.
1: The attachment points of muscles and tendons to the bone through the apophysial cartilage are specific areas of concern with children. Growth primarily occurs at the apophysial growth plate where ligaments and tendons are connected. We did talk about this a little bit last week too with Severs disease as well, so that's one thing to kind of keep in mind too. During periods of rapid growth, the increased tension on these attachments can sometimes cause them to detach from the apophysis,
0: resulting in an avulsion fracture. Campbell has a really important fact listed, or at least I feel like it's a very important fact, but tendinitis occurs much less frequently in the child than the adult because the insertion becomes symptomatic before the tendon in children, there can also be irritation of the insertional area of the musculotendinous unit, causing pain and inflammation. There's also irritation to growth plates due to the traction apophysitis from muscle attachments, just like we talked about, such as the cases with Osgood Slaughter disease, Severs, and Sinding larsen Johansson disease. Make sure you know the anatomical points of all of those.
1: The book moves into discussing specific sports injuries, so we'll touch on each one of them. We're going to start off with concussions. A concussion is a complex brain injury caused by traumatic forces applied to the head, face or neck. It can result from a direct blow to the head or an impact elsewhere on the body that then transmits force to the head. A loss of consciousness may or may not occur. Symptoms and signs of a concussion typically emerge immediately or within hours, days, or sometimes even weeks after the injury. Diagnosis is based on the appearance of new or worsening criteria following a suspected head injury, including any period of loss of consciousness or decreased level of consciousness, loss of memory or events before or after the injury, mental state alterations such as confusion, disorientation, or slowed thinking at the time of injury. And various signs and symptoms such as headache, slowed reaction times, dizziness, nausea, vomiting, sleep disturbances, irritability, emotional changes, difficulty concentrating,
0: visual disturbances, and sensitivity to light or sound. It is important to note that concussions can also have life-threatening complications such as an intracranial hemorrhage including epidural and subdural hematomas. Subdural hematoma is the leading cause of death following a head injury and symptoms of that include an initial preservation of consciousness so they may not lose consciousness but they might present with a very severe headache, lethargy, and focal neurological signs. So if any of these are appearing, it is essential to be aware and get this person to the emergency room.
1: The evaluation of concussions involves multiple factors and various assessment tools are available for diagnosis and monitoring. Sideline assessment tools such as the sports concussion assessment tool or the SCAT 5 and the child SCAT 5 are commonly used by medical professionals to evaluate individuals with suspected head injuries. Reassessment of patients should then be conducted a few days after the injury using neurocognitive screening techniques, symptom indices, and physical assessments. Physical therapists are increasingly playing a role in post-concussion care by evaluating impairments in postural control, musculoskeletal function, vestibular or oculomotor function, and cardiovascular systems. Similar to the sideline assessments, a variety of screening options and strategies are available for potential post-concussion impairments in physical therapy clinics, which can then be individualized based on the specific patient's symptoms, goals, and medical history. Table 17.4 in the book outlines these.
0: The return to activity program following a concussion is definitely something that we would review and make sure that you understand it. So really quick, there is a chart from the book. In the chart, no activity is recommended and complete physical and cognitive rest in the first stage, so in that recovery stage. In the light aerobic exercise stage, we want to look at doing things like walking, swimming, or stationary cycling, keeping the intensity very low with no resistance training. The goal of this stage is really just to increase the heart rate a little bit. Next, we move into the sports specific exercise. So this is things like early drills. If you were doing something with soccer you might do some running drills we want no impact no head impact activities the goal of this stage is really just to start to add in some movement some dynamic movement next we move into the non-contact training drills so this is stuff where we're progressing a little bit more we're progressing to more complex training drills so maybe if you were talking about football we might do some more passing In this stage, we are going to start some more progressive resistance training. And the goal is to exercise, to increase coordination, increase a little bit of that cognitive load, right? So now we're playing, but we're also thinking a little bit about what we're doing. Next, we move into the full contact practice stage where... After medical clearance, we're participating in more normal training activities. So our practices are starting to look very, very similar to what all of our peers are doing. And this stage, we're trying to restore confidence. We're trying to see how things are going, assessing a little bit more of those functional skills. And then the last stage is the ability to return to play. So at that point, we're playing all normal throughout. So in this, the really important thing that we remember is that during any one of these stages, if symptoms start to appear, you need to stop the activity and then resume the activity the next time, the next time you see that client, the level below where you were at before. So the goal is to be symptom-free through all of these stages.
1: Yeah, and that's really important to remember because you may get a question on that where it's That tells you, you know, that their symptoms, you know, began at X stage and you should be able to know where you kind of need to go back to from there. There is also a clinical practice guideline specific to physical therapy management of concussion and mild TBI. The CPG provides a comprehensive and systematic review of the literature related to physical therapy evaluation and interventions, decision trees to help guide care, and discussion for potential areas of future research.
0: Moving on to cervical injuries, the most common injury results from hyperflexion or hyperextension. So hyperflexion injuries are typically caused by spearing type mechanisms and can be especially serious in young athletes due to that underdeveloped musculature and the potential for fractures. Hyperextension injuries can occur with less force because the anterior neck muscles are much weaker than the posterior neck muscles. Face or head tackling is a common cause of hyperextension injuries. And then last, a stinger or a burner. This is another type of surgical injury. This is a traction injury to the brachial plexus. So it occurs when you have some sort of a forceful blow to the head from the side. So you're basically laterally flexing the head really aggressively. And then if the shoulder is also depressed at the same time, then you're going to get a really big traction injury. I think we've all had those.
1: Yeah, I think so too. Yeah. Next, we have thoracic and lumbar spine injuries. Thoracic spinal injuries are rare in children, but compression of the rib cage can lead to costovertebral injuries. Symptoms usually include pain and muscle spasms along the associated rib, sometimes with pain during thoracic rotation. Fractures of the vertebrae can occur due to axial compression forces on a preflexed spine particularly at the T12 to L1 level. The most common injuries in the lumbar spine of children are spondylolysis and spondylolisthesis which we kind of touched on last week but we're going to review for you again here. The spondylolysis refers to stress fractures in the pars interarticularis, often caused by repeated or excessive hyperextension experienced in certain sports and activities like football, weightlifting, diving, or gymnastics. Spondylolisthesis occurs when one vertebra slips forward over another, typically L5 over S1 or L4 over L5. Athletes with grade two or higher slippage are usually advised against activities requiring excessive lumbar extensions. So again, we talked about this in an earlier episode. Lysis means like to break essentially, whereas lithesis means to slip. So that's kind of how I try to think about the two
0: uh, and try to keep them straight. I was actually writing this episode and I remembered you saying that. And I was thinking that actually really does help me remember that. So see, we are all still learning.
1: Yeah. And good thing I taking Latin in uh, college was never something I thought would actually truly help me. But with this medical terminology, it actually kind of does. It really does. That is true.
0: So moving on to shoulders, which is definitely a little bit of a bigger category, we have things like fractures, we have subluxations, we have dislocations, and we have unfortunately overuse injuries as well here. The shoulder joint in young kids is particularly vulnerable to injuries because it's really hyperelastic. So it's already a highly mobile joint. And then in children, we have some of that increased elasticity, making it really susceptible to passive and dynamic instability patterns. Acromial clavicular sprains are more common in skeletally mature athletes. They're usually caused by direct forces to the shoulder, such as a fall or a blow. The management of an AC joint separation is usually conservative with rest, ice compression, and elevation along with a sling. Some cases may require surgical stabilization if conservative measurements are unsuccessful, but that's pretty rare. So therapeutic exercises to increase shoulder mobility and strength are essential for recovery. Fractures can be common in the middle third of the clavicle. They're often managed with figure eight straps or slings until they're healed. Growth plate fractures are more prevalent in children here due to the relative weakness of the proximal humerus compared to the surrounding structures little league shoulder is definitely something i would know and pay attention to it is a common injury in young pitchers and catchers caused by rotational torque on the proximal humeral growth plate right all of that throwing skeletally immature athletes with proximal shoulder pain should be suspected of having an epiphyseal injury Limiting throwing and rotational activities, along with strengthening exercises, are typically advised until the pain subsides. And then here, I think assessing the biomechanics as well, making sure that we are having good throwing mechanics. Anterior subluxation and dislocation can happen with contact sports, gymnastics, and overhead throwing sports. Strengthening the appropriate musculature is usually effective, but surgery could be considered in some severe cases. Rotator cuff tears are less common in younger athletes, but obviously can occur. Surgical intervention and rehab focusing on strength and endurance training for all of the shoulder muscles, along with, again, correcting those biomechanical movements, is important. Younger athletes often experience rotator cuff impingement syndrome due to, again, that excessive laxity and mobility of that shoulder joint complex. Physical therapy here can be focused on shoulder stabilization, muscle strength, improved mobility, and dynamic movement patterns that can be successful in, uh, in addressing some of that underlying instability that we see in the shoulder.
1: All right, so moving down the arm to the elbow. Supracondylar fractures of the humerus are the second most common fractures in skeletally immature individuals. These fractures typically result from falling on an outstretched arm or a foosh injury with significant forces into extension. Avulsion fractures of the medial epicondyle are also common and can be associated with elbow dislocations or throwing injuries. Repetitive microtrauma from pitching in baseball, um, or I guess eh, mostly baseball, can cause epiphyseal injuries to the radial head, leading to loss of extension and supination. Rest is the recommended treatment for radial head pathology. In children under seven years old, forceful distraction of the arm can sublux the radial head due to the poor development of the annular ligament, often known as nursemaid's elbow. We touched on this last week, so remember what Sheila had said. Make sure that you know the terms and, but you actually understand what's really happening. Um, so like nursemaid's elbow, you don't necessarily, can't really correlate it with anything necessarily when you just look at the name, but you just need to know exactly what that means and what exactly is occurring. Elbow dislocation is commonly seen in contact sports due to falling on an abducted and extended arm. Early protected mobility is important to preserve normal elbow motion. Physical therapy should focus on normalizing elbow and forearm mobility and improving strength. Little league elbow is a common injury resulting from extreme valgus stress during the acceleration phase of pitching. Rest and rehabilitation are typically recommended to restore full mobility and strength in the upper extremity. Addressing abnormal throwing mechanics may also be necessary and honestly is probably crucial for those young kids just making sure that they're using good form and not compensating uh, due to either lack of strength or pain or whatever it
0: is. And I think this is where it comes into play too, where now they're having pitch counts for children where we're really, I mean, I don't know if it's sad or not, but because we're specializing so much earlier that kids in really young sports can already start to benefit from having pitch counts. So we make sure that we're not overusing that even more than they already are.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I feel like when I was playing sports, when I was younger, it, you know, they thought about it. Softball was a little bit different than baseball because the throwing motion is a little bit different, but the pitch counts are really starting to come into play within the last like five to 10 years or so. Um, So definitely important to think about. And then lastly for the elbow, lateral epicondylitis or tennis elbow occurs as a result of repeated injury to the lateral epicondyle, which is essentially repetitive microtrauma to the wrist extensors. Rehabilitation is aimed at reducing inflammation, chronic irritation, adhesions, and strength of the forearm and hand muscles.
0: So this is another thing that we talked about last time and this time is if someone says tennis elbow in a question and they don't give you any other information, you have to understand that we're talking about the lateral aspect of the elbow, right? Because that's where some of the challenge of questions is going to come up is that they're going to try to not give you very much information and assume that you know and can infer that information and then go on to answer the question. So. You could be in a really rough place if you're like, "Ah, tennis elbow, I remember it's the elbow, I don't remember which side. It's going to make it challenging to answer a question. So just our little test taking tips to really help you improve your studying and make sure that you're understanding the underlying anatomy of things that are going on. Moving on down again, we were at the shoulder, then we talked about the elbow. Now we're talking about wrist and hand injuries. So in young children, we see sometimes those torus or buckle fractures of the distal radial epiphysis. They can be common after a fall and they can usually be treated with simple splinting. Metaphyseal fractures of the distal radius and ulna are more common in children and may require some sort of a reduction before casting. Fractures through the growth plate are common in younger adolescents and often require more of that operative reduction. So there are a couple of things that athletes specifically who bear weight on their hands may experience. So they might have stress injuries to the distal radial epiphysis. They may have something called TFCC, which is triangular fibrocartilage complex tears. And then they may also have ligamentous injuries in that carpal region. Fractures of the navicular or the scaphoid bone are common in children aged 12 to 15, and they require an early diagnosis because that area is due or that area is at an increased risk of that avascular necrosis or something that might cause a non union, so the fracture doesn't heal very well. Dislocations often involve the thumb or the carpometacarpal joints. Reduction and immobilization are going to be necessary here, and obviously, a period of splint stabilization is, is recommended. So dorsal dislocation of the thumb metacarpophalangeal joint is the most common thumb dislocation. With specific joint injuries, the metacarpophalangeal joint is the most frequently injured. Bony gamekeeper's thumb, where the ulnar collateral ligament avulses a segment of the bone, can be common in youth. And then we also have jammed fingers. So that's caused by the axial compression force, and those are common in all age groups. Last, we have mallet finger which involves tearing the terminal extensor tendon. So you kind of get that finger that's flexed down because it doesn't have that pull to extend up. Moving down to the lower extremity. The
1: hip and pelvis have complex ossification patterns and fuse late in childhood, which makes them susceptible to injury. Hip pain in children is typically caused by various factors, including skeletal injuries like dislocations, avulsions or fractures as well as soft tissue injuries non-traumatic causes of hip pain include the skiffy which we talked about last week leg calf perth disease developmental dysplasia and neoplastic conditions in the case of a traumatic hip dislocation in children they're usually posterior and affected and the affected limb may be flexed adducted and internally rotated Swift reduction of the dislocation is crucial to minimize the risk of avascular necrosis. Fractions in the hip region are rare, but can occur in the epiphyseal plate, femoral neck, or subtrochanteric area. Fractures in the neck and subtrochanteric region are often the result of severe trauma. The slipped capital femoral epiphysis, which is the skiffy, is not caused by sports, but should be suspected in any athlete with persistent hip or knee pain with a limp, We really harped on this last week for you guys, so make sure you know what a skiffy is and make sure that you understand that you have to rule it out before you can continue on with any treatment. It typically occurs during the rapid growth period in adolescence and may require surgical reduction with internal fixation. Avulsion fractures, which we talked about a little bit earlier, where a small piece of bone is pulled away due to forceful muscle contraction, are the most common type of fractures seen in young athletes. They frequently occur at different sites, such as the anterior superior iliac spine, the ischium, the lesser trochanter, the anterior inferior iliac spine, and the iliac crest. These injuries are often associated with sprinting, jumping, soccer, football, and weightlifting. You should also be kind of mindful and think about what muscles are maybe detaching, you know, or pulling at that bone um, when these types of injuries occur. Stress fractures and osteitis pubis are increasingly being diagnosed due to repetitive microtrauma, especially in runners or athletes who suddenly increase their involvement in activities like jumping or kicking. Persistent groin pain and tenderness, along with limited mobility and activity-related increases in pain, can indicate these conditions. Radiographs and bone scans may be necessary for diagnosis. Snapping hip syndrome is an overuse issue. It can be caused by irritation of the iliotibial band or tenosynovitis of the iliopsoas tendon. Avascular necrosis of the femoral head is a serious condition seen in young athletes aged 5 to 12 years. It occurs when activity irritates the synovium, leading to decreased blood supply to the femoral head. Nonspecific hip pain is the initial complaint, and radiographs can show characteristic changes. Contusions are also common, with hip pointer being the most frequent type. This contusion is caused by a blow, a direct blow to the iliac crest.
0: Knee injuries obviously make up a really large part of the child and adolescent injuries. Fractures in the knee, such as distal femoral fractures or acute fractures of the tibial tubercle, can occur during high energy or lower energy trauma, and they're often sports-related. The type of fracture determines the management, which may include mobilization, protected weight-bearing, closed or open reduction, and fixation. Ligament injuries such as medial collateral ligament tears or anterior cruciate ligament tears are unfortunately becoming more common. MCL tears can be treated non-operatively with splinting and avoidance of that valgus stress, while ACL tears may require non-surgical or surgical reconstruction depending on the age of the patient. The book discusses the various surgical techniques for an ACL reconstruction, they do discuss the modified ACL reconstruction, which is performed to respect the still open fizzies of the skeletally immature child. So make sure to go ahead and review that. I think that that's something that's really important and different than how we look at ACL reconstruction in adults. We discussed juvenile osteochondritis desiccans previously in last week's episode, so remember this is a subchondral bone lesion that can cause pain and instability in the knee. Treatment options vary based on age and severity, but this is one that does not have good outcomes after skeletal maturity, so aggressive therapy to resolve pain before closure of the plate is recommended. Meniscal injuries often occur alongside other knee injuries and require an accurate diagnosis for appropriate management, which can include surgical repair or debridement of that meniscus. Patellofemoral pain, lateral patellar instability, and subluxation dislocation are all common conditions in young athletes, often caused by anatomical and biomechanical factors. Anatomic factors such as patella alta, a larger Q angle, hip antiversion, a flattened lateral femoral condyle, a shallow femoral groove, or PES planus can cause abnormal tracking of that patella during knee motion. So, all things to consider during an evaluation of a child that may be complaining of patellofemoral pain. Finally, apophysitis, such as Osgood-Schlatter's disease and sinding larsing Johansson syndrome, both of those can cause localized pain and tenderness at the tibial tuberosity and the inferior pole of the patella. Treatment options for these conditions include relative rest, activity modification, medication, flexibility improvement, and quadriceps muscle strengthening.
1: Last but not least, ankle and foot injuries. The injuries often involve the growth plates in the tibia and fibula, particularly in young athletes. Fractures such as Salter-Harris 1 and 2 injuries in the distal fibula are common, especially as a result of an inversion injury. Do you you remember our helpful tip from last week to understand what Salter-Harris type 1 and 2 are? So one would be the S, so straight across the growth plate, and then two corresponds to the A, which is above the growth plate. Again, remember, put these on the on your study guide. Type three and four of the medial malleolus usually result from ankle supination or inversion. So type three corresponds to the L, which stands for lower or below the growth plate. And then type four corresponds to the T, meaning through the growth plate. Remember that type five is for crush injury. To determine the need for x-rays, the Ottawa rules can be applied, which include factors like bone tenderness or inability to bear weight
0: let's review the ottawa rules really quick so the ottawa rule states that an ankle series is indicated only for patients with pain in the in the malleolar zone and any of the following findings so one bone tenderness at the posterior edge of either the medial or lateral malleolus or two inability to bear weight immediately after the injury and in the emergency room so the rules further state that a foot series, so before that was for a radiograph of an ankle, the rules further state that for a foot series, that is required only with midfoot pain and any of the following findings. So one, bone tenderness at the base of the fifth metatarsal. Two, bone tenderness at the navicular. Or three, inability to bear weight immediately in the emergency room. So again, those maybe aren't exactly for us because we're obviously not working in an emergency room, but just some things to kind of keep in mind as you're studying.
1: And also too, um, something to remember just with the Ottawa rules. If you're a school-based therapist, you may see something like that, right? Where it's, you're pushing into gym class with a kid, you're pushing into recess with a kid, and then all of a sudden an injury happens. So it is something we should be aware of. Definitely something to keep on your master or daily study guides for sure. Um, Stress fractures in the metatarsals are common in children participating in jumping and distance running activities because their bones are so porous. If an injury like this is suspected, these injuries should be immobilized for three weeks, followed by a gradual increase in activity level.
0: Several types of ischemia can occur in the bones of the child's foot. So these are things like Freiberg infarction and Kohler disease, making sure that we understand what those two are. Freiberg is an avascular necrosis of the metatarsal epiphysis and commonly occurs if we have a kid that is toe walking or perhaps in someone that is doing that activity as part of their sport. So thinking ballerina, dancer, gymnast. It can be most common in the second met head, and it's usually seen in children who are older than 12. So, Kohler disease is common in active boys aged 3 to 7, and it, it's usually seen in kids that have a very cavus foot. So, what we might see is focal tenderness and swelling around the navicular bone. Angle sprains can occur, but usually we see this a little bit more in older kids. In younger kids, we see more of those epiphyseal fractures because the epiphysis is more open. Last, we've talked about this a little bit before, but we have our Severs disease, which this is kind of comparable to Osgood-Slaughter syndrome of the knee. So it is an apophysitis at the calcaneus. Treatment involves heel cord stretching and using a heel lift in well-constructed shoes. Jumping gears a bit, or kind of a lot, now we're going to move on to pediatric oncology. This chapter can be a little tough to get through because it's not exactly a happy topic, but there is definitely good information all around in here. The chapter has some great charts that are useful and maybe something you want to consider if you're for your study guide if this is a challenging topic for you. I think hospital-based is hard because it's probably an area where a lot of us haven't dabbled. And so this is definitely something that we want to spend extra time with if it's really outside of your current practice setting.
1: I know this chapter was one of the last chapters that I actually read in Campbell just because the topic for me is It's just a hard topic to get through, right? You don't want to see kids that are having cancer or anything like that. Um, So I definitely pushed this topic to the very end of my studying, but we're going to jump right in into those common pediatric cancers. So we're actually going to go over table 18.1 with you because it's very clear, concise, and has the majority of information that you need to know about the different types of pediatric cancers. However, we do suggest going through the chapter and reading it in its entirety. Okay, so the first type are leukemias. So they include so signs and symptoms include enlarged lymph nodes, enlarged liver or spleen, fever, easy bleeding, and/ or bruising, night sweats and or weight loss. Um, they consist of 28% of childhood cancers and 13% of adolescent cancers. And these types of cancers affect lymphoid and myeloid cells, monocytes, erythrocytes, platelets, progenitor cells for granulocytes, and all of these play a major role in the body's immune function.
0: And just because it's hard, because we're going through a chart for the... For the incidence of this, like this is the biggest one, right? So 28% is the definitely the largest of all of the pediatric cancers. So just to kind of help you guys put this into your brain as you're listening to us, um, it can help to know that this is definitely the most common.
1: Yep, absolutely. Lymphomas are the next one. They The signs and symptoms include a painless enlargement of one or more lymph nodes, night sweats, persistent fatigue, fever, and or chills, unexplained weight loss, anorexia, and or puriditis. Um, This They include 12 to 19% of all pediatric cancers, and the pathology occurs in the precursor cells destined to become lymphocytes, resulting in the production of large number of abnormal and non-functioning lymphocytes. Next, you have brain and central nervous system tumors. Some signs and symptoms include headache and or vomiting, especially in the morning, vision, speech, and or hearing changes, worsening balance, unsteady gait, unusual sleepiness, weakness, ataxia, seizures, and or personality changes. They account for 21 to 27% of all pediatric cancers. And the pathology includes that the tumors are classified by the type of cell or tissue in which they originate or by the tumor's location to the central nervous system. So the main ones that the book goes over includes uh, astrocytomas, which arise from astrocytes. Medulloblastomas originate in the cerebellum. appendiomas arise from neuroglial cells in the brain and spinal cord. Next, you have neuroblastomas. Uh, Signs and symptoms include weakness, difficulty breathing, an abdominal mass, constipation, vomiting, and or diarrhea, difficulty urinating, and or high blood pressure. They account for 6% of all pediatric cancers. The pathology includes neuroendocrine tumors that arise from neuroblasts and are found throughout the developing sympathetic nervous system. The next one we're going on to are retinoblastomas. Signs and symptoms include a pupil that appears red or white instead of black, a crossed eye, vision changes, and or an enlarged pupil. They account for 2% of all pediatric cancers. And they originate in the retina arising when immature retinoblasts, which are really just immature retinal cells, mutate into cancerous cells, resulting in a non-functioning retina. Next are Will's tumors or nephroblastomas. Signs and symptoms include an asymptomatic unilateral abdominal lump or mass, blood in the urine, fever, diarrhea, urogenital infections, and or malaise. They account for 5% of all pediatric cancers and they arise from immature kidney cells. Another tidbit, nephro means kidney. So that's how I remember that one. Sarcomas are the last one, um, and those are soft tissue and bone cancers. Signs and symptoms include intermittent pain that often worsens at night, swelling, decreased range of motion, and or altered gait patterns. They account for 7% of all pediatric tumors, and the pathology includes solid tumors that arise in connective tissue, so this can be muscle, bone, cartilage, and fat. Table 18.5 also presents some diagnosis-specific body structure and function impairments and activity limitations for specific diagnoses. So for leukemia and lymphoma, some body function and structure impairments and activity limitations may include bone pain from buildup of blast cells in the bone marrow, decreased ankle dorsiflexion strength and range of motion and hand grip strength, balance and Postural coordination from viscristine peripheral neuropathy, pain, decreased hip, ankle, and knee range of motion from corticosteroid-induced osteonecrosis. They also also includes decreased gross and fine motor skills, decreased mobility, decreased ability to carry or move objects, and then increased fatigue. For an osteosarcoma or an Ewing sarcoma, um, some of the Body function and structure impairments and activity limitations include biomechanical changes to a limb, causing increased energy expenditure for locomotion, neuropathic and nociceptive pain from tumor impingement, surgical pain, or osteoporosis, decreased sensation from surgical nerve damage, decreased strength and range of motion from slow wound healing, immobility, nerve damage, scar adhesions, or CNS metastasis altered gait pattern and decreased ambulation, and decreased stair climbing. And then lastly, central and peripheral nervous system tumors. Some of the body structure and function impairments and activity limitations include pain from surgery and nerve impingement, decreased strength and range of motion from tumor impingement, surgical pain, fear, immobility, and inactivity, and then poor motor control or abnormal muscle tone.
0: Now that we're familiar with the pediatric cancers, let's go over some of the surgical and medical management of these specific cancers. Starting off with surgery, this is going to involve a resection or removal of a solid tumor, so your sarcomas, your pediatric brain cancers, your Wilms tumors, etc. That's always going to remain kind of the principal strategy, right? Removal of the tumor. So what we're gonna see is they will resect the tumor and the area around it immediately adjacent to the tumor. So they're gonna check for clean or negative margins. So what they wanna see is no cancer cells at those outer edges of the res- of the resected tissue. Then we're gonna look at doing a radiation or chemotherapy. This might be used prior to the surgery in order to reduce the size of the tumor and it may be used after the surgery as well to ensure that we don't that we have completely eradicated the tumor or the cancer pt's when treating pediatric patients with a surgical history definitely need to be aware of where the tumor was located what tissues were resected and what tissues were spared Then we also need to be aware of what lines and ports the child may have and be careful not to dislodge any of those ports or catheters during a PT session. And then we also want to make sure that we're keeping any of the area where they have some of those ports clean, dry, and protected from injury. Some unique considerations for sarcomas are gonna include amputation. So we've talked about this a lot and then this chapter reviews it as well. So there's two different places in Campbell where you can get a lot of information about amputation. We're not gonna go over this again, but we just wanna remind you that this is where we might see some of those things like the Van Ness plasty, or also just in general, what types of amputation we might see. And then also here, they talk a little bit about limb sparing again. So understanding those concepts is going to be really, really important. Radiation is another medical management for pediatric cancers. So this is going to expose those tumors to ionizing radiation, which then damages the DNA of the irradiated cells. And then it limits the ability for these cells to continue to replicate. It's well-recognized for causing fibrosis, resulting in tissue injury and reduced function. So knowing the radiation field is something that can help us anticipate and possibly prevent impairments. Chemotherapy obviously is another way that we are going to medically manage pediatric cancers. So this is going to be a use of drugs to eradicate a tumor or slow tumor growth, which may prolong life or reduce immediate adverse effects of the tumor. But then of course, knowing that they have a lot of adverse effects as well so things like vomiting hair loss fatigue or mucositis chemo brain myelosuppression and then some of those things like the vincristine induced neuropathies so lots to think about when it comes to the medical management for a physical therapist so just like sheila said many of those chemotherapy agents can be cytotoxic
1: and it's really important that we know the effects of each one because there may be clinical concerns along with them so table 18.3 in the book does a really great job of breaking down and organizing all of the chemotherapy agents. And we're going to go over a few with you right now. So some of the ones that I feel like popped up and are studying pretty consistently. So one is cisplatin. This is used for osteosarcoma. Hodgkin's lymphoma, neuroblastoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and astrocytoma. So some clinical things that we need to be aware of include monitoring symptoms and blood counts, routine hearing assessments, screen and treat symptoms of peripheral neuropathy. Another one that came up commonly in our studying is doxorubicin. So this is used to treat lymphoma and AML. Um, So we want to make sure clinically that we're doing routine cardiologic assessments and monitoring symptoms and blood counts. Methotrexate is another that's used for osteosarcoma and leukemia, and we want to monitor symptoms and blood counts with this one. Dexamethasone is used for ALL, um, and you want to make sure you're monitoring symptoms and blood counts, screening for osteonecrosis routine bone health assessments, and managements as well. And then just like Sheila said, that Vincristin used for leukemia, Hodgkin's lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, neuroblastoma, and rhabdomyosarcoma. So you wanna be on the lookout for the peripheral neuropathy and then also monitor symptoms and blood counts. The book goes over a bunch of others, so you can go through yourself and kind of look through all of those, like that chart Uh, Because it's nice to familiarize yourself with those cytotoxic um, effects of some of those chemotherapy drugs.
0: Targeted therapies are newer developing treatments that target molecular markers or cellular processes found exclusively or primarily in cancer cells, allowing them to target cancer cells while while sparing normal cells, right? That's the biggest challenge with both chemotherapy and radiation is that they target the bad cells, but they also target the good cells. So that's why we see all of these negative side effects. So targeted therapies are trying to be more selective. This helps increase the efficiency while decreasing both those short- and long-term toxic effects of chemotherapy and radiation. Some pediatric patients with leukemia, Hodgkin's lymphoma, or a non-Hodgkin's lymphoma may not respond to chemotherapy, and then they may be eligible for stem cell transplants. Something to be aware of with stem cell transplants include a disease called graft-versus-host disease. So, this occurs in patients who receive allogenic transplant and has a higher likelihood of occurring because the histocompatibility of tissue between the donor and the recipient decreases. Acute graft-versus-host disease Symptoms are things like a rash, itchy skin, skin discoloration, dry mouth or mouth ulcers, diarrhea and weight loss, joint contractures, and malabsorption. Chronic graft-versus-host disease occurs one or more years post-transplant and presents with similar symptoms as acute but lasts a lot longer than acute.
1: When examining a patient with cancer, you need to take a few things into account. So you must understand the essential role of the family medical team relationship and how to deliver these services in the context of family centered care. We talk about family centered care all the time. It's going to come up in every single chapter pretty much in this book. You want to make sure you're aware of the patient's blood counts, which Sheila is going to go over with you in a little bit. You want to complete a thorough systems review. So this includes musculoskeletal impairments, neuromuscular impairments, cardiopulmonary limitations, and integumentary changes. And also box 18.1 and 18.2 in the book are very helpful and break down examination and interventions for children with adolescents and cancer. So let's go over some of the recommended measures for evaluating children and adolescents with cancer. So just kind of what we went over, some body functions and structure include musculoskeletal, so range of motion and strength. Neuromuscular includes um, an outcome measure called the pediatric modified total neuropathy score. Cardiopulmonary is endurance, heart rate, rate of perceived exertion, et cetera. Some activities and participation outcome measures include timed up and down the stairs, timed up and go. The gross motor function measure, the BOT, the PEDS-QL, the SF36V2, the Musculoskeletal Tumor Society, and the Toronto Extremity Salvage Scale. The book goes over these a little bit more extensively, uh, but you can look these up as well if you're unfamiliar with them. And then another one that is used is the Functional Mobility Assessment. So recommended interventions for body structure and function include range of motion exercises, strengthening exercises, and then balance and coordination exercises. Some activities and participation interventions include aerobic activities. So this can include walking, biking, and swimming. Participation in sports and age-appropriate recreational groups, so such as taekwondo and dance classes, and then physical education classes as well. And then some communications considerations for the physical therapists include, like we had mentioned, the family and the patient, other members of the medical team, school teachers, which is really important, primary care physician, and then other therapists from physical therapy or different disciplines.
0: The one thing I wanted to mention here, and we talked a little bit about this last season when we had on Kara Arps, who is specifically an acute care therapist, is really making sure, especially with oncology, that when you're looking at questions or case studies related is to really understand what setting you are in when you're answering a question, because your goals for seeing a patient that's perhaps inpatient or a patient that's outpatient and has been removed from the hospital for a while, they're going to be different. And you need to think about that. And we talked a little bit about that with Kara is that the really the hospital goals are much different than what we would look at for outpatient goals. So just making sure we're thinking about that. We'll talk a little bit more about that as well. But really, hospital-based goals are looking at safety and movement and figuring out what the child needs in order to be able to go home. Next, we are going to go over blood values. It is important to understand what normal is for these values. So that is where we're going to start. So let's talk a little bit about the different blood values that you might see on a medical chart for a child who is inpatient. First, we have white blood cells. So these are also called your leukocytes. Their purpose is to fight infections. And the normal ranges are 5.0 to 10.0 times 10 to the ninth cells per liter. Then we have our neutrophils. So this is usually listed as an ANC or an absolute neutrophil count. Goal: The purpose of these is also to fight infection. And then we have normal ranges need to be greater than 1.5 times 10 to the ninth cells per liter. Then we have hemoglobin. Its purpose is to transport carbon dioxide and oxygen. So symptoms of low hemoglobin are going to be things like anemia, pallor, fatigue, shortness of breath. So for males, normal ranges are 14 to 17.4 grams per deciliter and females a little bit lower, so 12 to 16 grams per deciliter. Last, we'll talk about platelets, so these are also thrombocytes. The goal of these is to help blood to clot, so symptoms of decreased platelets include things like bruising, petechiae, or bleeding from the nose and gums. Our normal ranges here that we're looking for are one hundred and forty to 400,000 cells per microliter. The next thing we're gonna talk about is possibly one of the most important things for you to put onto your master study guide because it's very important when we're looking at inpatient treatment for children with pediatric cancers. So the recommendations for participation in exercise interventions with below normal blood cell counts and hemoglobin levels are as follows. So for white blood cells, if we have less than 5,000 cells per millimeters cubed and there's a fever present, no aerobic exercise is recommended. If we have greater than 5,000 cells per millimeters cubed, we are allowed to do light aerobic exercise. And if we have greater than 5,000 cells per millimeters cubed, we also can do resistant exercises. So this is going to depend a little bit on the facility and individual protocols, but these are just general recommendations. For platelets, if we have less than 10,000 cells per millimeters cubed, no aerobic exercise. If we have 10,000 to 20,000 cells per millimeters cubed, we are allowed light aerobic exercise. Greater than twenty thousand cells per millimeters cubed, we can do resistance exercises. And last, hemoglobin. If our hemoglobin is less than eight, no aerobic exercise. This here, it does specify in the bo- specify in the book that essential daily activities are okay here. Eight to ten grams per deciliter we can do light aerobic exercise, light weights. And then if we have greater than eight grams per deciliter, we can do resistance exercises. So of course, all of these are within the constraints of the hospital, whatever the physicians are recommended, but these are kind of the numbers to base your initial answering of a question or going through a case study.
1: Definitely something to put on your daily study guide because I know I definitely had that on there for mine. So if the child is cleared for exercise, it's important to encourage and provide opportunities for children and adolescents with cancers to maintain their activity level and participation in age-appropriate activities and recreation. This has been shown to be safe and effective. If exercise is not indicated, the PT should focus on family education, pain management, supportive positioning, functional mobility, and addressing equipment needs. So now we're going to kind of go over some specific interventions for some specific diagnoses. So specific interventions for children with leukemia. So those who are at risk for the CIPN, which is that peripheral neuropathy, the chemo-induced peripheral neuropathy. Research has shown that performing daily ankle dorsiflexion stretches held for 30 seconds, five days a week, reversed and prevented limitations in active dorsiflexion performing lower extremity strengthening exercises. So exercises such as mini squats and stepping onto and off of a step for three sets of 10, three days per week, improved lower extremity strength. Balance and coordination components should also definitely be incorporated. When a child is initiating chemo, it's important to identify age appropriate gross motor skills, provide interventions that will help the patient to at least approach these skills encourage the patient to achieve these skills, and then get the family involved in the setting and pursuit of their goals. Aerobic endurance and fatigue are also important to address in these patients. And then you want to be aware of the risk factors of osteonecrosis with patients with leukemia. So this means avoiding high-impact activities during treatment sessions until osteonecrosis has definitely been ruled out by an MRI. Next, we have some interventions for a lower extremity sarcoma. So provide the tra- child with crutch or walker training consistent with the child's weight bearing status of the involved lower limb. You also really want to make sure that you're performing range of motion as well. And treatment tends to depend on the type of surgery that was completed. So refer to whatever the surgeon says that they did and all that kind of stuff. So interventions for brain tumor, one thing that we really want to make sure that we know and understand is that these patients can be at risk for posterior fossa syndrome following surgical recession of the tumor if a tumor is taken out. So these symptoms could include apraxia, dysarthria, mutism, irritability, ataxia, changes in muscle tone, and poor motor coordination. Um, Physical therapy treatment really tends to depend on the function of the child or adolescent right after surgical intervention.
0: All right, that is everything for this episode. It was kind of a disjointed episode. We started with sports injuries. We ended with pediatric cancer. Hopefully this is just helping you guys go through and figure out a little bit about what the key takeaways from chapters are, what some things that you need to go back and review are, what stuff you maybe feel really confident in. And we hope that this is helping with your studying for now. We will see you on Friday for another subscription episode.
1: Thank you for tuning into Pushing Pediatrics today. We hope you found the information shared valuable and applicable to your test preparation and daily practice. Remember, success is a journey, and we're committed to supporting you every step of the way.
0: Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your colleagues. Until next time, you've got this.